Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have a, a listener request. It's one of those listener requests that came in immediately after I had uh, already ordered the book from the library. And I feel really guilty that I did not write down the name of the person I was having a conversation about or a conversation with about it because it was on Facebook and those are impossible to find weeks later on our Facebook. But uh, if you remember the sad story that I said I was going to put off until after the new year a few weeks ago when we talked about the solder children, (laughs) when I said this sounds sad, but just wait, there's something way sadder. Welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to the way sadder episode. It is the schoolhouse blizzard, also known as the children's blizzard. It was a storm in 1888 in which many, many children and also many adults froze to death in the snow, sometimes literally right outside of the safety of shelter. This was a tragedy that grew from a confluence of factors, and one of them was our ability to forecast the weather. A recurring theme in our episodes on the Western Frontier Days of the United States is that weather could cause enormous problems. And it wasn't just because the weather itself in this part of the North American continent can be unpredictable and prone to extremes. The colonists and homesteaders living there were often newcomers to a region that just didn't have a lot of resources to deal with unexpected extremes. This Western migration of newcomers into an unfamiliar area was absolutely deliberate. The United States specifically wanted to populate land that had previously been inhabited by North Americans' indigenous peoples with its own citizens. Among other things, in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Homestead Act into law, and this provided people with 160 acres of land in exchange for a a small fee, plus five years of continuous residence on that land. Soldiers who had served in the Union Army had a year removed for each year that they had served during the Civil War. Homesteaders and other newcomers didn't necessarily know how to deal with the region's weather or even how to run a homestead, but they were often desperate to hang on to that 160 acres for the required number of years. People rode out storms and other events that might otherwise have prompted them to flee, if not for the fact that if they did, they would have lost all their land and all of the work they had already put into it. The relative newness of this Western expansion also meant that the region just didn't have the infrastructure it needed to deal with these types of problems. For example, in the long winter of 1880 to 1881, so just a few years before what we're talking about today, uh, that would have been a lot easier to deal with. Um, it was an extremely long and snowy season that we've talked about in a prior episode. And if communities had had a few more years of experience under their belts, more time to build roads and improve their homes and businesses and more seasons to try to lay aside extra food and other resources in case of that kind of event, it would have been a lot easier to deal with. This was certainly the case here. Uh, many of the homesteaders living in the American Midwest at this point were still living in the sod huts that they directed upon first arriving at their land claim. And homesteaders who weren't quite as new to the area had also been through a series of setbacks in recent years, including plagues of the now extinct Rocky Mountain locusts, prairie fires, floods, and of course, other blizzards and uncommonly snowy winters. Much of this we've covered in our podcast on Laura Ingalls Wilder, who grew up in this area during this period of time. 
So it may come as a surprise to people that what the nation actually did have at this point was a formal, although imperfect, system for trying to predict the weather and notify people of oncoming storms. Basic meteorological equipment like thermometers, barometers, and anemometers had, of course, existed for centuries. But the invention of the telegraph was what had made it possible for people to spread the word when dangerous weather was approaching. It also made it possible for people who observed and recorded the weather to talk to each other quickly and compile lots of data in order to use that data to make predictions. The first weather network to put this idea into play in the United States started in the 1840s, thanks to the Smithsonian Institution. The Smithsonian gave meteorological tools to volunteers who recorded their observations and telegraphed them back to the Smithsonian to be compiled into maps and then studied. The Smithsonian's work went on until it was disrupted by the Civil War. Once the war was over, though, the United States government recognized that understanding the weather and being able to predict it was a matter of national importance, particularly in the western frontier, where, as we just mentioned, the government was actively trying to encourage migration and the weather tended to be erratic. Eventually, on February 9, 1870, Ulysses S. Grant signed a resolution to, quote, provide for taking meteorological observations at the military stations in the interior of the continent and at other points in the states and territories, and for giving notice on the northern Great Lakes and on the seacoast by magnetic telegraph and marine signals of the approach and force of storms. And he signed that into law. This put the observation and recording of weather under the auspices of the Secretary of War, under the assumption that military discipline and precision would be conducive to making accurate and timely weather observations and predictions. These recordings and predictions fell to the Signal Service Corps. A school of meteorology was established in which enlisted men and later officers learned basic meteorology, telegraphy, how to install and maintain telegraph wires and other signaling equipment and signaling itself. The Signal Service Corps started off recording and issuing observations and predictions that were relatively general and applied to large chunks of the continent. But it gradually covered smaller areas with greater frequency and for farther in advance. So in 1873, the Corps was mapping the weather data it received, making predictions and distributing these predictions as, quote, farmers bulletins to be displayed at post offices. In 1881, signal flags replaced or supplemented these paper bulletins. The Signal Service Corps' weather predictions definitely were not perfect. They relied a lot more on predicting where existing patterns would move than on the conditions that would lead to new patterns emerging. And they also tended to rely on weather folklore uh, rather than actual science. There was also a huge gap in weather knowledge that the forecasters at the time didn't even know that they didn't know. That was the idea of the weather front. We take the idea of a cold front or a warm front or whatever for granted today. But that concept did not even arise until 1919. And it wasn't a common part of weather maps until the 1940s. So they're basically doing all of this mapping and predicting, unaware of the fact that these weather systems were organized into fronts. Well, we figured it out eventually. Unfortunately, the signal service itself was also hit with repeated accusations of mismanagement and embezzlement, along with a lot of internal strife during these years. It was loaded down with interdepartmental conflicts, bureaucracy, pettiness, and infighting. In a lot of ways, the whole organization was just dysfunctional. All that said, though, the Signal Service Corps' work made a huge difference in the basic quality of life and weather preparedness, especially of people living on the frontier. These predictions, although they were definitely flawed, were 
also definitely better than nothing. And that was the state of things in 1888. We will get to the details of the blizzard that we're talking about today and how these forecasts failed to warn people about it after a brief word from one of our sponsors. On the American Prairie, the winter of 1887 to 1888 was brutal. It had been particularly cold and particularly snowy for weeks. Conditions on Native American reservations were particularly dire, with many reporting a severe lack of food and other provisions throughout that entire winter. The 20 to 40 inches of snow that had fallen in December were still there at the beginning of January when the weather turned again, this time dropping a thick layer of sleet on top of that snow. That made what had been merely treacherous and difficult almost totally impassable. Temperatures in early January were frequently in the double digits below zero. All across the Midwest, people had been sticking close to home for weeks. This sounds utterly miserable. Uh, it was. Since I have winter rage disorder and get really crabby the second like the thermometer drops below 40, I cannot imagine surviving something like this. Um This meant that the morning of January 12th came as a huge relief. It was warmer than it had been in what seemed like ages. The sun actually came out and the temperature gradually rose to close to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. That's four degrees Celsius. Uh, While a few people were suspicious about this abrupt break in the weather, for the most part, this sudden appearance of comparatively sunny warmth was a really welcome change. Almost everyone jumped at the opportunity to get out of the house. Children who hadn't been able to go to school in weeks, sometimes the schools had even been closed completely, rushed out in comparatively light clothing. Adults trekked out from their homes to more outlying areas of their farms and homesteads to take care of chores that desperately needed doing that they hadn't been able to do in a really long time. People who needed to go to town to pick up provisions did. Animals that had been cooped up in barns and stables were let out to stretch their legs. Now, I'm going to just, I grew up in the South. I know that to some of you, 40 degrees does not sound like time to party. (laughs) But when it's been that cold for that long and you've been cooped inside for that long, even 40 degrees feels like a luxury. I know this now from personal experience, (laughs) having lived in Massachusetts last winter when we got 110 inches of snow, I will walk outside in 40 degree weather without my coat on. (laughs) So do not fault these small children for rushing out without their scarves and gloves on this joyously warm 40-degree day. Yeah, it's all relative and what you're used to. I always laugh when we're, uh, for example, like in Florida visiting Disney World or something, and it drops below 60, and you see people in hats and scarves. It's all relative. (laughs) Yeah. On the other hand, you will walk down the street. It's 20 degrees in Massachusetts, and people are in shorts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, However, uh, back to this particular blizzard, Unfortunately, these folks who were out frolicking in the sudden warm weather were mostly ignorant of a weather pattern that the Signal Service Corps had actually spotted on the 11th. That was the day before this beautiful day. Lieutenant Thomas Mayhew Woodruff of the U.S. Army was the one compiling the forecast in the signal office in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he had been stationed since the previous October. At first, Lieutenant Woodruff and his assistant, Sergeant Alexander McGaddy, had thought that this unusually low pressure reading at one of the more remote northern signal signal core outposts on the morning of the 11th was just an anomaly. They kind of wrote it off as maybe a shoddy reading or a fault in some equipment. 
But as the day wore on and the scheduled observations rolled in from all the other Signal Service Corps stations, it became clear that an area of low pressure was moving down from Alberta, Canada, and then traveling southeast through the Great Plains. This was a pretty typical pattern that Woodruff had observed many times before. Areas of low pressure often moved into the nation from Alberta and then traveled southeast. And so, also based on past experience, he expected temperatures to rise in advance of this low-pressure area and then fall in its wake. So based on all of these observations and his past experience, his forecast for January 12th that he filed just after midnight read, quote, Indications for 24 hours commencing at 7 a.m. today for St. Paul, Minneapolis, and vicinity. Warmer weather with snow, fresh southerly winds becoming variable. For Minnesota, warmer, with snow fresh to high southerly winds becoming variable. For Dakota, snow, warmer, followed in the western portion by colder weather, fresh to high winds, generally becoming northerly. The snow will drift heavily in Minnesota and Dakota during the day and night. The winds will generally shift to high, colder, northerly during the afternoon and night. Even though he expected falling temperatures after the low-pressure area moved through, Lieutenant Woodruff didn't think he needed to issue a cold-wave warning. He was already seeing above-freezing temperatures reported, so a cold-wave warning just didn't seem warranted. So, at the night of the 11th slash morning of the 12th, people had gotten a weather forecast telling them to expect that it would be uh, cold, cold, warmer, but then colder, but not anything really alarming. However, on the morning of the 12th, when Woodruff got back to work, he once again mapped out all the new weather observations that had come in from the other Signal Corps field offices over overnight and in the morning. The weather system was still moving along the path that he had predicted, and as he had expected, temperatures in advance of it were warm and behind it were cold. But it was a lot warmer ahead of the low-pressure area and a lot colder behind it than he had expected. So at 10.30 a.m. on January 12th, Woodruff issued a cold wave warning for Dakota Territory, Nebraska, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Doing so meant sending extra telegrams out to the Associated Press and other wire services, as well as other signal service stations in the area. At post offices and stations, black and white cold wave warning flags would be flown from the time they got the notification until Woodruff issued a takedown order. This is sort of the area's equivalent of the National Weather Service warnings that we get today when there is sudden bad weather that could be an emergency expected. Unfortunately, though, this warning just came too late because of backlogs at Western Union offices and various problems along the line. The message to raise the flags did not arrive at many of the outposts that had them until afternoon. By that point, the storm was imminent, and most of the people who were going to leave home that day already had, completely unprepared for the shift in the weather that they did not know was coming. Starting in the early afternoon of January 12th, the weather turned so suddenly that survivors of this whole event said they had never seen anything like it. The day was fine, and then it wasn't. People reported being able to see, while standing outside in 40-degree weather, a blizzard moving in like a gray wall. Temperatures plummeted back below freezing and continued to fall. Winds gusted to 40 miles an hour and beyond. In the words of a Signal Service observer in Huron, Dakota Territory, quote, At 12.42 p.m., the air was perfectly calm for about one minute. 
The next minute, the sky was completely overcast by heavy black clouds, which for a few minutes previous had hung along the western and northwestern horizon. And the wind veered to the west and blew with such violence as to render the position of the observer on the roof unsafe. The air was immediately filled with snow as fine as sifted flour. This extremely fine, icy snow was incredibly treacherous. People's eyelashes froze together. The resulting irritation led to tears, but those froze too. But even if people could get their eyes open, the fine, icy precipitation was so heavy and windblown that they literally couldn't see more than a foot in any direction. People became completely disoriented, basically hemmed in by a wall of gray-white blizzard. There are so many first-person accounts surviving from the time that people said they literally could not see their hand in front of their face. It was not an exaggeration. These flakes of snow and the pellets of ice were also so fine that they pelted all the way through people's clothing directly to their skin, lowering their body temperatures precipitously, and then, as all that snow melted, soaking their clothing and refreezing it. The reason that this is nicknamed the schoolhouse blizzard is that the weather turned while school was about to let out, or it just had let out. Teachers, many of whom were barely older than their students, were faced with the decision of whether it was safer to send the children home or to keep them in the schoolhouse. And in some cases, this depended on what warning, if any, they got. Blizzards coming, get everyone home, or blizzards coming, keep everyone in. Minnie Mae Freeman, a teacher in Nebraska, made the call to evacuate her students from their one-room sod school. They had nailed the front door in place after the storm blew it off two times, and it was only after part of the roof was then blown away that she made the decision that the risk was greater to stay put than to try to go out in the storm. She did manage to keep all of her students together, and they made it half a mile to the home where she boarded, where they took refuge and survived the storm. In Groton, Nebraska, men showed up with a team of horses and carts to take children home from school, and they took all but one. He had turned back to get a perfume bottle that he had forgotten in the schoolhouse, and then when he emerged again, he immediately got lost, and he was unconscious by the time his brother found him, but his brother did indeed find him. Rescues like this were extremely rare in this storm. More often than not, people who went after missing loved ones froze to death themselves. Many of the other stories of school teachers trying to look after their students have a much more tragic end. Children and teachers got lost in the snow trying to find their way to safety and died. And the same was true of adults who were out and about on their business. A train was stranded near Garvin, Minnesota, and people from the town tried unsuccessfully to rescue them. Survivors were actually trapped in that train for three days. Etta Shattuck, a teacher who had gone to collect her pay, hadn't even made it to the gate yet when the storm blew in. The family she was boarding with shouted at her from the door until their voices literally gave out, but they couldn't be heard over the gale. Many of those, whether they ventured out into the storm or stayed indoors and ran out of fuel but ultimately survived the night, lost fingers and toes and even limbs to frostbite. Many, many animals died in the storm as well. Livestock and other farm animals suffocated and were smothered by the icy precipitation that froze over their their noses and mouths, or they simply froze to death. I was not able to get my hands on the book. There is a book of firsthand accounts of all this called In All Its Fury that was written by people who survived it in the 1940s. It's out of print now, which is why I wasn't able to get a copy of it to do the research. But it's quoted a lot in a lot of the material I did use for research. A lot of stories are heartbreaking 
which is why we're going to take a pause from them here and have a brief word from sponsor where we talk about the aftermath of all of this. Ultimately, the children's blizzard was part of a massive weather system that pushed tremendously cold air as far south as Mexico. Pretty much the entire central part of the United States was affected with the timing of the blizzard being the most deadly and damaging in Dakota Territory, Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas, just because it happened to strike in the early afternoon. The cold wave that followed the blizzard, with temperatures well, well below zero all across across the Midwest, persisted until January 15th. By Saturday, newspapers across the nation were reporting on the blizzard, first with stories of the deaths and the tragedies, and then those of miraculous survivals and heroic efforts on the parts of teachers to rescue their students. The Sunday after the blizzard at the Salem Mennonite Church in Dakota Territory, the minister made an announcement that a farmer had found five bodies in a firebreak on his property. They were the children of several different families who were part of that congregation who had wandered miles off course in the storm after being separated from their teacher and other classmates. That school teacher, Etta Shattuck, that we mentioned earlier, was found in the haystack where she had taken refuge, having miraculously survived more than three days buried inside it. However, she died after a series of amputations due to gangrene following severe frostbite. Other survivors of the initial blizzard had similar fates, dying later on due to complications and delayed effects of their prolonged exposure. It's nearly impossible to calculate an exact death toll from the schoolhouse blizzard. The areas that were most affected were also the most remote, so the records are really spotty. And in some cases, people's bodies weren't found for weeks or months after the event. The estimate, though, is often around 200 or 300 people killed. This tragedy did prompt many communities to reinforce their schoolhouses, replacing sod structures with frame, and making frame structures sturdier and more weathertight. Chief Signal Officer Adolphus Washington Greeley really downplayed the severity and impact of this storm and completely dismissed the idea that the Signal Corps could or should have have foreseen it in the monthly weather review. He called the scale of it an exaggeration, and he placed the blame squarely on the fact that much of the territory involved was newly settled. Lieutenant Thomas Mayhew Woodruff was eventually made to give a report of why the order to fly the cold wave flags had come so late. But this seems to have been more because of an ongoing dispute he had with another meteorologist than over any actual concern about his performance. He was ultimately offered another position in the Army and left the Signal Corps. He died of yellow fever during the Spanish-American War. Unlike some of our other episodes in which a terrible tragedy led to reforms that prevented such occurrences in the future, this wasn't quite the case in 1888. That March, another massive storm struck, this time in northeastern North America. It was so severe and profound that it was nicknamed the Great White Hurricane. It killed at least 400 people. Similarly, warnings about this storm came quite late, in part because the Signal Corps station was closed from midnight Saturday until 5 p.m. Sunday, which was a critical forecasting window for this particular storm. Port cities along the northeastern coast consequently got absolutely no warning that the storm was coming, leading to thousands of people being stranded and numerous ships at anchor being damaged or completely destroyed. The storm basically blew in from the sea and shoved ships at anchor into their moorings and into the shore and just tore them to pieces. 
1889, in part because this March failure in forecasting had become such a huge national embarrassment. I mean, it the death toll was larger and a lot more people were uh, stranded. These were like the bigger cities that, to be frank, people cared about more than they necessarily cared about the frontier. Uh, the president, Benjamin Harrison, recommended that the task of forecasting the weather be taken be taken out of the hands of the Department of War and given instead to the Department of Agriculture. By 1891, the all-civilian United States Weather Bureau was in place, and that did eventually become the National Weather Service. And that is a schoolhouse blizzard. It's so Along sad. A, it's extremely sad. Along with a basic introduction on uh, on how weather forecasting developed in the United States, um, I there was a. There are so many stories. Number one, in all its fury, if you're able to get your hands on a copy of that book, I'm, I'm imagining it's fascinating because it's all these first person accounts that were written down by people who were alive, uh, in, in 1888. Um, and, uh, it, it was reprinted about a hundred years after the storm came out, but it's out of print now. Um, my only option to read it would have been to purchase a copy, which I couldn't do at this particular time, but, uh, but if you're able to get your hands on it, maybe your library has it. I, I'm imagining it has to be fascinating and heartbreaking. Um, and then The Children's Blizzard by David Laskin was another book that I read leading up to this, which does make a lot of use of that existing firsthand material. And so one of the things that I had thought about putting into the episode that I did not was from a letter from like a, a Norwegian homesteader who basically came home and wrote this very matter-of-fact letter about how he found his beloved wife froze to death, and then they he found their child froze to death, and the only one left alive was the baby who had been like bundled up in a crib. The whole thing enormously sad, in my opinion, sadder than the solder children, which took its place in my research schedule. Uh, I'm hoping so, that you have uh, less dour listener mail. Uh, my listener mail is not particularly dour, and it's kind of interesting. This is, uh, we've gotten several notes about our, uh, our Unearthed in 2015 episode where we talk about one of the discoveries from Egypt in which you will find vastly different spellings of the names of the people involved. Yeah. And some of them make sense, but some of them feel like somebody put all the syllables in a bag and shook it up and then pulled them back out again to make a new <laughs> name. Um, so we've gotten several letters and they all say basically the same thing. Uh, and so I'm just going to read from one of them and it's from Libby and Libby says, hi guys, I love the 2015 Unearthed show. I thought I might be able to clear up some confusion with the many spellings of that fourth dynasty Pharaoh's name. I'm not an Egyptologist, but I am a historical novelist who specializes in ancient Egyptian fiction. As such, I've done a ton of reading through Egyptology texts and papers, and I'm fairly familiar with ancient Egyptian naming conventions. The variation in his name, and in virtually all other ancient Egyptian names you'll encounter if you read around enough, comes from two different quirks of the Egyptian written language. They called their language and, and culture Kemtu, by the way. Uh, I think that's Kemtu, by the way, which you'll find spelled in several different ways. So maybe one of those is the way I pronounced it the first time. Kemetu recorded very few vowel sounds. Most of their writing shows only consonant sounds. So Ranafera slash Neferefra's name would have been written, uh, and this is written as a series of R's, N's, and F's in a couple of different orders, depending on who wrote it down and where. 
may have actually been pronounced Ray Nef Ear Oof or Re Nuf or Eef or any combination of vowel sounds you can imagine. Egyptologists have made educated guesses about pronunciations based on vowel-consonant combinations used in Coptic, which is the closest living language to Kemetu that is still spoken today. The lack of recorded vowel sounds also expa- explains why uh, Kent Kaus's name is spelled many different ways in these articles and why I'm spelling it a totally different way here. In addition to the lack of vowel sounds, royals' names recorded on official monuments, such as a tomb, were written vertically and encircled by a cartouche, an oval-shaped rope that denoted divine status of the royal blood. Rarely you will find names written bottom to top instead of top to bottom. Actually, we don't know which direction was considered the standard and which was the variation. I can tell you that earlier Egyptians' names tended to stress the ray before the nefer, while later names, New Kingdom a couple thousand years later, tended to stress the nefer before the ray. So it could be that the Egyptologist who wrote his name uh, Neferefri was was just more used to working with the New Kingdom sites and assumed that was the correct way to say his name. I hope this didn't confuse you further. Thanks for a great show, Libby. Thank you, Libby. So cool. Know. It's very cool. Uh, I, and if you know, and if, if any Egyptologists want to confirm or refute that, we would be happy to hear from you. I found it extremely interesting, and it lines up with basically the same thing that several different um, enthusiast and hobbyist Egypt aficionados wrote into us. I found it super interesting. It also kind of uh, highlights why sometimes figuring out how to pronounce things in ancient languages is an impossible task for Holly and me. <laughs> well, and even for scholars, because and things scholars. do shift and evolve. They're, they change. Yes. So uh, I wonder if all uh, those people that wrote us are excited that the I think the next Assassin's Creed is going to be in Egypt. If I remember, if I saw the correct headline, <laughs> so maybe it'll be fun for all of us. I hope so. We get a lot of notes that variously reference Assassin's Creed. I know that's why I it's thought maybe cool. our listeners would like that information. <laughs> I bet they do. I know that people really liked it when uh, before the holidays I went out to Boston Common to take pictures, do some Periscope from the Christmas tree that. Uh, that comes from Halifax to Boston every year after the, um, after the Boston, uh, no, after the Halifax explosion. Suddenly it all got twisted in my head. <laughs> um, and I took a picture, uh, of the frog pond in Boston Public Garden, which is basically a, a place called Swan's Pond in Fallout 4. And I put that on our Twitter and people got really excited about that. So we definitely have some Fallout 4 fans. And the listeners. Yeah. Including me. Super cool. Yep. So, if you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Put the word blizzard in the search bar. You will find an article called 10 Biggest Snowstorms of All Time, which does talk about that East Coast blizzard of 1888, the great white hurricane that we just talked about, um, that shoved, uh, shoved ships into the shore and caused people to be lost at sea and stranded and generally was awful. So, you can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and find an entire archive of every episode we've ever done, plus show notes for all the ones Holly and I have done. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 